Before I start, I need to, uh, I couldn't get to Grady. We were running around and everything, and I couldn't get to him before prayer. When you have a chance, if you could lift Nellie up in prayer. She's got uh, a case of bronchitis, possible RSV. And it's not pneumonia, so she's battling keeping it from becoming pneumonia. So if you could uh, uh, pray for that. She did get a good night's sleep last night, first time in, in 10 days. So uh, if you could uh, keep Nellie in prayer. Um, think about what are your favorite Christmas words when you get around Thanksgiving or get around Labor Day when Lowe's and Home Depot think it's Christmas coming, but you know, when, when, when you know that, it, that it's coming and what, do you, what, what words evoke Christmas for you, just particular words? When I was a kid, probably the word vacation came up first, you know? Uh, Christmas vacation. They actually got uh, almost two weeks off back in my day. Um, Charlie Brown. <clears throat> a Charlie Brown Christmas was coming uh, pretty soon. Um, mostly my words were around food too, especially uh, um, wholesome foods like divinity and peanut butter fudge. Uh, certain types of cookies, you know, that that's that's what, it, what, what did it for me, uh, you know, when I was a kid. Um, when I became born again <clears throat> and found my place in the body of Christ, um, I love all the, uh, the, the, the high-minded liturgical words that we think about. Annunciation and incarnation and advent. And this year, the one that hit me the most is presence. Not pre-R-E-S-E-N-T-S, although he is the greatest Christmas present, but the greatest present is his presence. And I think that that's, that's what got me the most is that I told you that I like being able to look at, through, look at Christmas through eyes that we may not normally look through because our pastoral version over the years, our version of Silent Night and uh, the Holy Family stamped in gold foil on our Christmas cards, it's, it, it, it's tame compared to the world in which the baby came. Yeah, I like what, how Philip Yancey uh, calls Revelation 12 as actually uh, the, the Christmas story. You know, a woman uh, giving birth and a dragon ready to uh, consume the child as soon as it's born, but the child is whisked away. You know, it's, it's the beginning. It's the beginning of an incursion. It's the beginning of a salvation rescue attempt on behalf of the good of heaven to be able to rescue his children here on earth. It wasn't silent at all. It wasn't serene at all. The world in which he came was as turbulent, if not more turbulent, than the world we live in today. Yet, every year, we're called to mind to be able to celebrate his presence. So all those words, for me, come together, even all the way back to peanut butter fudge and my grandmother's recipe. So with all those words that I said, and maybe some of the ones that you were thinking of the most that invoke your memories of Christmas, have you ever considered then the word apocalypse as a Christmas word? That comes right up, doesn't it? If I were to list your top 10 Christmas words, apocalypse is right there at the top. It isn't, is it? Why not? 
Well, one of the reasons why not is that most people in the world, and I'm sorry to say that most people in the church don't know what the word apocalypse means. If you were to ask the average person on the street, what does apocalypse mean, what would they say? It means the end. Apocalypse means a cataclysmic end to the world. It invokes fear and dread and scoffing. Apocalypse is the absolute end of all things. That's what it means. I heard somebody say that that was the biblical meaning of the Greek word apocalypsis, meaning the end. And it isn't so. The word apocalypse doesn't mean anything like that. The word apocalypse means revelation. The first words of the apocalypse are the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not the end of Jesus Christ. Not the end of his days. Not even the beginning of his days. Revelation talks about the one who was, who is, and is to come. Why? Because every Christmas we need a revelation of Christ. And we get it when we're reminded that he actually came and revealed himself to us as never before, as a baby. Someone once said that when you begin to study the apocalypse, I had a professor that said, well, it's written a long time, is that the apocalypse either finds a man mad or it leaves him mad. Think of some cases in the recent past. When I mentioned David Koresh in the U.S., or Shoko Asahara in Japan, or Luke Loray in Europe. Those are all men that believed that they could bring about, or we were living in the end, and they called it apocalyptic, or they called it apocalypse. By the way, I gotta update my notes. That only takes me to 1994. How many have been around since then? Most cults today are put on immediate watch lists with the federal government because they claim to be apocalyptic cults. All you have to do is use the word apocalypse and you're labeled. Every church then becomes a compound in their minds because they don't know what the word means. There are thousands of mystics who flock to Jerusalem every year on Christmas and Easter. They are either looking for the Messiah to be shown, the apocalyptic Messiah to be revealed, they are either looking for the Messiah to be revealed or they're there to reveal to everyone else that they're the Messiah. It happens every year, there are thousands of them. So since we don't know what the word apocalypse means, we have to be introduced to it. And that's why I told you that I wanted to do this series based on this Christmas series, based on the eyes of Revelation, because it, three times in the book of Revelation, he actually says that his presence isn't just there, the baby in the manger, 33 years now back to the right hand of God. No, it is was, is, and is to come that we need the revelation of the manger every year. We need to celebrate it. We need to understand that it wasn't a starting gun, that it was a continuation of a revelation that he had began before the foundation of the world. God has always been, and he always is, and he always will be. So as I pointed out, the word apocalypsis is an uncovering 
to be revealed. A revealing, a revelation, capital R, revelation, because that's why we call the book of Revelation, Revelation, Revelations. It literally means to pull the cover off, to reveal, which is implying that even after the manger, well, let's, let's go back, even after 4,000 years of revealing himself in the garden, uh, in the flood, at Sinai, to Abraham himself, 4,000 years revealing himself to the patriarchs, to the prophets, to the nation of his chosen people. And then finally the manger. And then 33 years. And then the cross. And then the resurrection. All of that says it's just the beginning. Because this book begins after all of that. And this book begins saying, I'm gonna reveal Jesus to you like you've never seen him before. That's all the book is, is to pull the cover off. Even after the glory of the resurrection, God's implying that Jesus still has a cover on him that needs to be removed in order for you and I to be able to truly know him. It's real. Revelation is real. The revelation of Christ is real. It's as real as the manger. It's as real as the date. It's as real as the place, Bethlehem. It's as real as the hills. It's as real as the gospel itself. Why? It was written by a real person. The author is a Jew. His name is Yohanan, okay, which we translate as John. The the Hebrew word is Yohanan, literally means Yahweh is gracious. If you were to address him, to be addressed him in Hebrew, his name would be Yohanan ben Zebedee. James and John were the sons of Zebedee, the father. Yohanan ben Zebedee, the brother of James, the beloved disciple of Christ. John will write in his gospel that he is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he doesn't let us forget it. The place is real. Patmos is a real place. You can see it today. It's a 16-mile square island in the Aegean Sea. By the way, he does it on an an island in the sea, which probably you can't walk for more than two hours to be back on the sea again and to always see the sea. Revelation uses the word sea 25 times. Why? Because he's surrounded by it. It's a real place. It's mostly a rock, basically. It's a 16-mile square rock, which had nothing but quarries put there by the, the, the Romans. He was exiled by Domitian. Prisoners lost all civil and property rights, and they were just dropped off on this rock, left there to die. They leave him there. We're not sure how long it is. When they finally show up to pick him up, they're expecting to find only his bones on the beach, and there he is. Which, by the way, is the third time that two emperors have tried to to execute him. He, He was boiled in oil once and he wouldn't die. So here he is now in his hundreds and Domitian lets him go. They drop him off in Ephesus and say, well, forget this guy. And he may actually have lived another 25 to 30 years to write his gospel. His gospel will come after this. So having a Jewish author makes this then a Hebrew book. 
You may not understand that, but Revelation is the most Hebrew of all books. It's steeped in Hebrew thought. The Jewish language makes it a biblical book. In other words, that when we're looking for keys to unlock Revelation, you're probably going to be able to find them in the Hebrew scriptures. The Apocalypse is more Hebrew than any other New Testament book. There are 2,000 allusions to the Hebrew scriptures in the book of Revelation, 400 explicit references, 90 literal citations of the Torah and the prophets. It's more faithful to the original Hebrew than the Greek translation of the book, the Septuagint is. Revelation is more faithful to the Hebrew. So how then does all this make apocalypse a Christmas word? Because it's real. It's as real as the manger was. It's revealing. The first words literally says, the revelation of who? The apocalypse of who? The apocalypsis of Jesu Christu in Greek, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Every year the manger reveals to us something about Jesus, usually something about his past, about our past. It's in our past. What everybody needs after Jesus came and lived and died and made sure that salvation was available to everybody and in the glory of his resurrection went back to heaven, accepted all the power as sitting right on the very throne of God. What everybody needs to know is that we still need to have him revealed to us. We need to know who he is and we need to know who he is to come that it's said three times in the book of Revelation. It's in chapter four, which we read the very first week, and two times in chapter one. Last week, Ed read from verse four, where John is saying, John says that he is who was and is and is to come. Grady, they quoted the last one. That's actually Jesus then saying it, that he is the alpha and the omega. I'm the one that was and is and is to come. The book is a revealing of Jesus Christ. Above all else, no matter what happens in the book of Revelation, that's what it's about. You get done, we get done, and we come up with some sort of intricate, great prophetic map that we, that we work out. If it did not reveal Jesus Christ, then we've got it wrong. It takes place in the end time but it isn't about the end time. It's about Jesus and what it means to live in his presence in the end time. It's not an unveiling of the end. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what Christmas was and is continued to do while we live on this planet? to reveal his past, to reveal his present, and to also reveal his future. John says, I'm the one who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. He was revealed to John first. The disciples saw him first. The first century, those first uh, uh, disciples, they saw him first. They laid hands on him. They were the ones that saw and heard him. So the question that you have to ask is, why does John need a revealing of Christ? 
Because John's now been living nearly 70 years after all of his friends have been martyred. He does not have a single friend left that experienced what he experienced. Thomas has been dead for 40. Peter, 30. They're all gone. He's been alone. He needs a revealing of Christ. He needs to know where Jesus is now and he needs to know that Jesus still is to come. Which means if John needs the revelation, then who really needs it? We do. We think sometimes that being the remnant means that we got it knocked. We've had all the revealing we need. Which by the way, which is why we locked him out of the church. Because we're rich in our revelation and we don't need any further revelation. So stay outside. We are in need of nothing. And by the way, people who are in need of nothing have no use for Jesus Christ. If John needs a revelation, boy, do I need a revelation. This Christmas series began about his presence. Just as we celebrate God's beginning as present in human flesh, the three times that Revelation describes it again is Jesus as the one who is, who was, and is to come. The God of Israel could not be captured or limited by one. The God we worship today is the same one worshiped by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The was. They knew that he was. We know that he was. And yet he is present. He is. But then John changes verbs. He changes, and it isn't just going to be. It's not that he was, is, and going to be. No, he changes it specifically to was, is, and is to come. He's not merely going to exist in the future, sitting on that throne as he went back to the kingdom and they gave him the the scroll and he began to break the seals because he was the only one that was worthy. The father wasn't even worthy of this. He gives it all to the son. That could be enough if he wanted to, but no, he is to come. He's not just gonna sit on the throne and to be. He personally is gonna come back to get the children that he promised that he would. God exists, but in spite of all the knowledge we have of him and all we've experienced, that he intervenes in history in the present, only the future holds the promise of his coming. The coming holds out to us more than the past and the present. He's more than the God of our memory, more than the God of existence. He's more than the God of spirituality and even of communion. He's the God who is to come. See, otherwise, we would continue in eternity to have communion without Christ at the table. Christ said, I want you to all to partake of this tonight, and I'm not gonna partake of it again until I can do it anew with you in the kingdom. If he's only going to merely exist in the future, then we will always be at the communion table without him. And he says, no, I came to fulfill all of that. I came to bring us all from the west and the east and to sit at the table of the marriage supper of the lamb, along with your fathers, Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov.
John even quotes Jesus actually even saying it. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. Remember again, when he got back to, the, according to Revelation 4 and 5, when he got back to the kingdom, he became the Almighty. The lamb that was slain is Almighty God. When he comes back, he comes back with all the power of the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John needs revealing of who is and who is to come. You and I need revealing of who is and who is to come. He already knows who was. Thanks to his testimony, we already know who was. The apostles were very confident that they knew who Jesus was. Paul tells the Galatians that he preached the gospel so clearly to them that Jesus was publicly crucified in their eyes. He said, I preached it so clearly to you that if you had been on Calvary that day, you wouldn't know any more than what I've already told you. What Paul needed before he died, even after preaching, was the revealing of who is and who is to come. And we especially need the revealing. Why? Because we're exiles on this planet. We don't belong here, do we? Our citizenship isn't even supposed to be in the kingdom of the world. We're cursed and consigned to walk in this world. With a mission, by the way but to live by the kingdom of heaven's rules to be able to show the kingdom of the world the freedom that they really can have. But even with that glory of that mission, we still are exiles here. We do not belong here. Exiles need revealing. Because when you live in a place where you're not really free, when you live in a place where you can't worship your God, when you live in a place that you're being forced to worship other gods, forced to live by certain rules, you are now in exile. It appears that God isn't even here, that he's not even present. So we need a letter. We need the word. We need an apocalypse. And that's, by the way, that's what apocalyptic literature was designed to do. It's designed to reveal God to whoever needs it at the time. The book of Daniel is an apocalyptic book. Do the people, uh, along with Daniel, do the people who are living in Babylon as exiles, do they need, to reveal, they need a revealing of God? Do they need to hear that God is still with them? Of course they do. They are in a foreign land in Babylon, unable to worship their God. The ancient mind couldn't even fathom worshiping God outside their land. Why? Because it was God that gave you the land. And if you're removed from it, you can't even worship God anymore. Do you remember when Naaman was cleansed of his leprosy? He wanted to worship the God while living in Syria. Remember, he lived in, in, in Syria. He lived beyond Damascus. He was a Gentile, right? Do you remember after he was cleansed with leprosy, he wanted to worship God, but the only way that he could was to command his soldiers to take two cubic yards of Israel's dirt with him? Because you can't worship God without the land that they gave him. 
And they attributed the land that they lived on to their gods. It's the reason why Israel is in exile. Because they still believe they're worshiping the God of the land while worshiping other gods. God had to take the land away from them in order to get them to know, you either worship me or you worship foreign gods. We're not gonna do this together. The captivity was supposed to show them that. But they're there. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar just hasn't defeated them. They've defeated, he's defeated God. He took all the worship articles from the temple and put them in his temple. Psalm 130 or 103. You'll have to check on me. I know, it's, I know it has those three digits in it. 130 or 103 is a lament about not being able to worship God. There by the rivers of Babylon, we can't worship God. We're being taunted by the Babylonians. Sing us a song of the worship of Israel. We're being teased, yet they take their instruments and they hang them in the eucalyptus trees by the rivers of Babylon. Because who can worship God and not be in his land? Jeremiah is a pre-exilic prophet. He tried to reveal God to them before the exile came. And when he did, he said, when the exile comes, don't worry. He preached to two different rulers where he said, do not fight this. Let the Babylonians take you. And when you get there, be fruitful and multiply. You'll have the opportunity to do so. And both of those rulers decided that they were going to align with Egypt. So that when Nebuchadnezzar came, he was ticked. and probably extra hard on them. But Jeremiah, his book, tried to reveal God to them. So before the exile, he was revealed to him. During the exile, he was revealed to him. Ezekiel is another uh, exilic prophet. The, the, his vision comes while they're still in captivity. And it's interesting, it's because it begins with God actually sitting on his throne, moving about the whole earth, and reminds them of his presence. The throne's got wheels within wheels, and when that thing moves, it makes noise, and it moves everywhere. He's saying, God's not sitting up in heaven. He's here. His presence is here. His power is here, and he's moving among you. It may not feel like it, but he is. And you don't believe that he's the God? Well, there's, there's a rainbow on there that was the promise to Noah. There's fire and lightning, which was the promise to Moses on Sinai. And he was there because they needed to be set free, as were the captives in Egypt. And he said, one day I'm going to set you free. And I'm going to bring you home. I've still got this. So just as God made sure that the exiles had hope, he makes sure that his people in the end will have hope. Revelation is our Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. It is our letter to the exiles. It's written specifically to us because every letter to the exiles needs to be a revelation of God, the God that is and the God that is to come. See, in Daniel 8, he asks, how long will this false God rule? How long will he be in charge? And the angel comes to him and he says, 2,300 years. And what did that do to Daniel? It made him sick. He went to bed. He lays in bed for days, he says. And, and then he says, and when I got up to go about the king's business, he said, I was still dismayed by it. I'm still sick. It was always on his mind. It was making him sick. 
He's dismayed, goes back to work, but he's completely dismayed. But what happens is, is the answer finally comes in chapter nine. We assume it, 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 it's like seven years later <laughs> that he finally gets the answer, and it comes to chapter nine. And, and when we go through Daniel, we'll go through this prophecy, but remember the 70-week prophecy, something happens in the very middle of it. In the very middle, Messiah comes, and you'll notice that when Daniel is shown that right in the middle of whatever this prophecy is, even though it sounds horrifically long, 2,300 years? I thought Jeremiah said it was only gonna be 70, but holy cow, 2,300? How could we even exist? It dismayed him, it made him sick, but as soon as he heard that in the middle the Messiah would come, Daniel doesn't ask how long anymore. That's all he needed to hear. All he needed was a revelation of who he is and who is to come. And Daniel's good after this. Christmas kind of serves this purpose, doesn't it? If we make apocalypse a Christmas word, it kind of serves that purpose. We look at the manger and we look at what's ahead of us and we say, how much longer? How long? Christmas reminds us of the time that he came so that we know that when he is to come, that we can believe it. That it it kind of goes this way. It says, it says here, he'll say it. He says, look, I'm coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those him who have pierced. And on his account, all the tribes of earth will wail. He's coming again. By the way, that's not new to John. John already knew that, remember? Back while he was here, he said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. There are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and I'll bring you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. That's nothing new to John, is it? This revelation, that's nothing new to John. He remembers that but there is something new about who he is now. See, when Jesus said this, he was still in his earthly body, on his earthly ministry. When he comes to John in Revelation, there's something different about him. I love, I love how it begins, uh, how uh, he actually shows his presence of the one who is uh, to John. John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a what? A loud voice. By the way, it is loud, loud. It is hecka loud. It's the same uh, loud voice that the third angel uses in Revelation 14. And by the way, when the third angel yells in Revelation 14, who hears it? Everybody. So it's loud. Megaphone is the Greek word. And it's crisp, like a trumpet. It is loud. So even though it sounds like a trumpet, it is loud. And what does it say? Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. I don't know about you, but if I'm in the spirit and meditating on a 16 square mile rock that has nothing else on it but the sound of the ocean, and you set off that loudspeaker behind me, I'm running till I hit the ocean. And then I'm swimming. Wouldn't you? But there's something different about this trumpet and this loud voice. It had to be familiar to John. You know why? Because of what he did. He didn't do what I would do. What did he do? I turned. 
to see whose voice was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. He turned. It's so beautiful. Hey, man, that sounds familiar. I haven't heard that voice in so long. Could it really be? And he turned and he saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. It is who I thought it was. It's not exactly, but I think that's why we're here, right? It's the revelation of Christ. He wants to reveal to me who he is right now. I know I recognize his voice and, and I kind of recognize his form. It, you know, it, it, it looks kind of, but, but the way that it's described, he's got to be thinking, whoa, his head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining with full force reveals to him who he is. By the way, the only other person to see this was Daniel. This is the glorified Christ. This is the one who is right now. This is the divine Jesus. John says, this one, I knew him personally, but this one, he's like him, but he's different. I have a new revelation of who Christ is. Jesus already told him that he, is, that he is and he's the first and the last. John must have known all this because it had happened to him by, shoot, by Matthew 17. All of this had happened to him. But this one, this is different. He's not the son of man. He's like the son of man. There's something different about him. A new what? A new revelation. A new apocalypse. Notice what happens to him too. Let me ask you this. If it had been Jesus, exactly the way that John remembered him, exactly the way John remembered him when he went back to heaven, which means he still had, he still had his scars, he still had everything. We don't know what he was dressed like. He may be still, still be dressed in his funeral clothes for the, that uh, 40 or so days that he, that he stayed with him and taught with him at, at the resurrection. All we know is that they gathered around him just like before. Let me ask you. If he had appeared to John in that way, would John have done this? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though what? As though dead. But he placed his right hand on me and he says, do not be what? Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. He's saying, this is new to you. I'm revealing it to you. It's me, John. If it had been the same, would John have been afraid of him? No, but now even John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, when he sees him, he's afraid. He says, I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and see, I'm alive forever and ever. I have the keys of death and of Hades. It's the first time that John has seen him in this power. But he's what? He's afraid. Notice what Jesus did. He said, do not be what? Do not be afraid. He didn't say get up, right? 
When John falls down on his face, what's he doing? He's worshiping him, but he said that I'm so afraid I could die. He thinks he's gonna die. I'm afraid. Jesus says, keep worshiping me, just don't what? Just don't be afraid. And that's what the revelation is, is that we can worship him without what? Without fear. And by the way, that's already been proved to us every year that we celebrate the manger. Is a baby a God to fear? A God that's willing to become a baby, that's willing to, to, to come to live and to die for you, above all what he's trying to tell us is the apocalypse means you can worship and not be afraid. By the way, the major difference between worshiping the, at the church, in the church of the lamb that was slain and worshiping in the church of the two beasts is that you are afraid when you worship in the church of the beasts. That is their motive for worshiping. And everybody worshiped the beast because if they didn't, the beast would do something about it. Keep worshiping. Just don't be afraid. In case you didn't learn that from a manger. You remember when I did the cross and the sword series two years ago? I said one thing that a manger is is a lousy weapon, isn't it? What kind of damage are you going to do with a manger? What kind of damage is a baby going to do? It's all the baby can do. See, one thing about Christmas and the apocalypse message to come, to have, have in common, is that he proved he was not to be feared. And now that he's grown, he grew up 33, died on the cross, was resurrected, now he has his full glorified body and he says, John, I know it feels different. I know it sounds different. I know it looks different. And I know you've now been faced with the power that I always had that you just never knew that I had. But I'm here to tell you, it's no different. You didn't fear me as a baby. You didn't fear me as a man. You don't need to fear me as God. He's the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. So what do we do in the end time with this message? Well, here's the message. It says, write what you've seen, what is and what is to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. And again, seven is a prophetic way of saying church. It's all God's church. It will be God's church now for the next 2,000 years. Revelation 1, uh, talking about the churches in Revelation 2, it is the history of the Christian church from the time that he went back to heaven and received the scroll and began to open the seals, it is the history of the church. Those seven churches. The church complete. And it takes us from the first century to Laodicea, which is us. And the seven stars are the angels. The seven stars is the message that he has for the church in every era, for every era. And he will begin to speak to them that way. This is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests 
serving his God and Father to be glory and dominion forever and ever. So that's what, it, what, what the message is for us. Notice what he says. He is the what? He's the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. We respond, the church responds to each of that. The believer responds. John is supposed to respond to this. As John responds, we are to respond. By the way, all through the book of Revelation, John takes his place as us. He's the first one. He's the very first believer that is worshiping the Jesus who is and looking forward to the who is to come. He's being revealed to him as if no one else has ever known. John is our first witness. He's us. What he does and how he worships, we get to too. So the faithful witness means that in the next verse, he says, the one who loves us, the firstborn of the dead, is mean that he freed us. We're free in his resurrection. He didn't keep his resurrection to himself. He says, my resurrection is your resurrection. You know, a lot of ways in, in I, think it's, I think it's Ephesians. It's either Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians. It's one of those where he says, you know what? Thanks to Christ, you're not even here. You think you're here, but you're not. <laughs> he said that don't you understand and realize that what Christ did for you, he did for you as, of, as if you were and as if all time. He said, you're not here, you're not alive. You're dead in Christ. We get baptized because we're absolutely dead in Christ. And then we're raised up in Christ. He said, so in ways you're not even here. If you believe in the, in the death, resurrection, and rebirth of Christ, then you believe that you have partaken of it. You're not even here. He says, you're with him in heavenly places. You're already there. That sounds good to me. Remember what he, how he comes to him too. Remember what he says. He says that the voice that came to him, remember where it came from? Where was it? It was behind him. Did you know that Hebrew thought, you know where the future lies? It's behind you. You know why? Because you can't see it. Jesus comes from the voice of the future to show him that he is, but also who is to come. If it's behind us, we can't see it. It's the future. The past is in front of us. We can see it. So in Hebrew thought, he's coming from the unknown. Why? Because he's already known and he wants to make himself known to John. The future's yet to happen. The loud voice then would represent what? It represents his future. It represents who is, but also who is to come. He says, it's loud, but you don't need to be alarmed by it. He's bright, but you don't need to fear. The future is uncertain, but you don't have to be afraid. And you don't need to be taken captive to that fear anymore. Amen. He loved us, he freed us, and he made us to be priests. By the way, not a priest the way that we think of. 
I can't have, no priest can have a relationship with Christ for you. That's not what it means. A priest means that I know what's, what's what. I know both. I can touch the son of man. I, I can touch God because remember what Job was asking for. I wish I could touch somebody who would understand us both. You and I are those priests. We can touch people because we're human and we have the same experience but we also have our hand firmly on God and we become what Job wanted us to be. I wish there was somebody who could understand both of us, the one who could lay his hand on Jesus and the one who could lay his hand on us. You and I are that presence when he promises that we will be those priests. By the way, that's how they rule. He noticed, he said, you'll be a kingdom. It isn't kingdom of priests, it's kingdom priests. In other words, that's who rules in the kingdom of heaven are the priests, not the kings. You with me? On the planet, on here, it's the kings that rule. They even rule the priests. Rome did it for centuries. But he says here, and how do I know? It's because how he appears. He appears in a white robe and a gold sash. He's dressed like the high priest. So when he's dressed like that and then promises you and me through John that we will be priests to everybody. It's a promise we don't have to wait on. It's here. So hope requires that we have hope. It requires that we don't have to wait. We have the present and the future. We have the sash. We have the priesthood. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests. We don't serve as intercessors between Jesus and the people, we serve Jesus with the people. We love all others as we have been loved. We forgive others as we have been forgiven. We have the experience to look somebody in the eye and say, I know where you've been. I know who you are because I am. And I'm not used to be, I am you. And all they're looking for is somebody to love them as God has promised that he loved us because they're not gonna find it in this kingdom. All they'll find in this kingdom are signs that have already been given. Mangers and babies and crosses and resurrections and revelations to one very old, tired apostle on a rock in an ocean. No matter what happens from Christmas to Christmas, it's not about 2,000 years ago in a manger. It's about the present. It's about the future. His presence is Christmas complete, no matter what year it may be. And his presence is Christmas complete because he is, he was, and he is to come. So as I've wished you all these Sabbaths, and then especially this Sabbath, last one will be together before Christmas. Merry Christmas. It's wonderful to celebrate it with you. This is my eighth with you. 
It's wonderful to celebrate it with you. Merry Christmas and happy Sabbath.